Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. My name's Darren, and uh, I'm excited to be able to begin this series in 1 Corinthians with you. If you're family around here, it's always nice to see you, and uh, it's always a privilege to be together to worship and study and all these things. Uh, if you're a guest, so if you've come with friends, or you're from the neighborhood, or you wandered in because you didn't have anything else to do on Sunday, we're really glad you're here. I want you to hear me say, we're glad you're here, and we hope that this will feel like home for you too. And anything I can do uh, to help with that, number one, I'd love to meet you. So uh, we're, a, we're a family church, and we're easy to get a hold of. It's nice to just be connected. So come and say, hey, but yeah, know that you're welcome. Now, as we're beginning this new series in 1 Corinthians, one of the tools we've been utilizing over the last few years are these journals. And Katie talked about it when you first came in. But I want you to know we bought one for all of you. So even if you're a guest or you're visiting, we have a 1 Corinthians journal for you. That just got the text of 1 Corinthians uh, met with a blank page on which you can record questions or comments or thoughts, things you want to study further, things the Holy Spirit says to you. But there's one of those 1 Corinthians journals for all of you. And we're not, we're not selling them. They're just, we bought them for you already. So if you didn't get one, a couple of our ushers are kind of moving around. You give them a wave and they'll give that to you. And we want you to make sure you have those for the, for the continuation of the study. Now, I'm going to kind of set up the whole study, but let me kind of give you a little bit of a framework for where we're headed and, and what this is called. We're going to be in this 1 Corinthians study uh, for two months. Uh, that will be the first half of the study. And then we'll have a little bit of a break for Christmas in the Advent series in December. And then in January, we'll jump back in and we'll finish 1 Corinthians. So we're going to do it uh, kind of at one glance with just a little sort of Advent break. But uh, for the next, you know, four months, give or take, we're going to be in this together we're, we're calling the series Saints Together, which is a phrase that we see here in the greeting at the beginning. We'll read it in just a second. But to give you a little context, uh, I also want to give you a little bit of homework, right? I know some of you didn't come to church today looking for homework. Some of you are in school and you have plenty of homework already. But here's the thing I'd like to ask you. If you're, um, if you're family around here, and I guess you're welcome to just ignore this if you want. But if you're family around here, I, I want to ask you to do me a favor in the next day or two. So like today or tomorrow, I'd actually like to ask you to read the entire book, right? I want you to read the whole thing. And I know that we did, when we started with our teaching team and planning for this series, that's the very first thing we did. We opened it up and we read it cover to cover because this is a letter, right? So in the same way that if you, uh, if you got a, a love letter from your spouse or your significant other or whatever, you wouldn't read like a sentence and then set it aside and then read another sentence over the course of many weeks. You'd just read little sections and you'd want to get the flow of the whole thing. That's important with an epistle, right? A letter like this, it's important that you see the flow from beginning to end. So here's my ask, and I'm actually going to ask you to raise your hand. If your family here, if this is your church home, would you commit to me to read the whole book of 1 Corinthians in the next two days, maybe three, get that you, will you just slip your hand up? Let me see you. So, cause I want you to know you committed this to me. Okay. Thank you. Come on. You guys can do better. Yeah. All right. Good. There we go. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, there's no accountability on that. Like I'm not following up. I'm not going to ask you later on. There's no stars on your chart in the office or whatever. But, um, I do think it's very important for us to remember as we begin in first Corinthians that we are reading a letter, right? The type of literature we're studying makes a difference in the way we read it. This is a letter that was written from Paul, uh, to the church at Corinth. Now, Corinth is a Greek city, but it's, it's situated in a really interesting place. So Corinth is sitting on an isthmus that's about four miles wide that is on the way from Athens 
to southern Greece, right? So, and it's kind of the only way through. So Corinth was a major uh, metropolitan, for whatever that's worth in the first century, trade route, right? There were two ports, one in the north and one in the south. It was a very diverse city. It was a city that was very prideful. It prided itself on being kind of a Roman city on Greek territory. But everybody who was moving from northern Greece to southern Greece, Corinth was kind of the only way through, unless you went by ocean, right? If you went in the Gulf or you went uh, on the water. Otherwise, you pass through. So it's an important trade route. It was a very important cultural city. It was a very prideful city and uh, kind of a very debaucherous city. So one of the highlights of Corinth was it's sort of the topographically, it sort of features a hill. Uh, and at the top of the hill was a temple to Aphrodite, which was, um, which was uh, the god of sex and love. And there were like over a thousand cult prostitutes that would make their way down into the city every day. So it's also a sex-obsessed culture and a sex-obsessed city. Um, There were other foreign gods there as well. But as we read it, it might be helpful for you to think of it in terms of cities not unlike... New York or Los Angeles or other cities in the world that are kind of a melting pot. It's a hodgepodge of all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places and and sort of proud of the fact that they're making community work even with people from all over. And yet in the midst of all of that, there is some brokenness, certainly because this is a city that's populated by broken people, just like all of us. Now, as we study it, I already asked you if you would uh, if you would read the whole book in the next little bit. I'm actually going to give you one other assignment, and that is that you read uh, sometime in the next week or so, that you read Acts 18, just kind of the first half of Acts 18. That's where we get sort of the narrative information about uh, Paul's initial visit to Corinth. And then beyond that, we sort of get the timeline of how the book is written. So Paul moves to Corinth. Uh, after he leaves Athens, he has kind of a rough go there. He, he comes to Corinth on that isthmus. And initially, as you'd read in Acts 18, uh, Paul has kind of a difficult time there. He's harassed by the Jewish people there who don't like that he's preaching Christ. And there's a moment in Acts 18 where he actually, it says he sort of shakes the dust off his clothes. Which is indicative of a guy who's like, I'm fed up with the people here. I'm not putting up with this. I'm going to go on to somewhere else. And in Acts 18, God comes to Paul. Jesus speaks to Paul in a vision. It says in Acts 18, 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So we understand from Acts 18 that there was a a season of discouragement that was followed by a season of encouragement, catalyzed and prompted by the voice of the Lord Jesus himself. When we read at the end of 1 Corinthians, uh, sort of a famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Well, he articulates that to the people at Corinth at the end of 1 Corinthians. I actually think that's a lesson he learned while he was serving in the city. I think there were moments for him where he wanted to quit and he wanted to give up and he wanted to walk away. And Jesus said, hey, don't give up. Be steadfast. This will produce fruit. Don't give up, right? So when he writes that later, we see that I I think he's reflecting on things, lessons he learned in the midst of his own ministry. He's there for 18 months, and then he moves on. Uh, We believe that this book, 1 Corinthians, is one of four letters of correspondence that he wrote to the church at Corinth. And I don't want to get in the weeds on this because 
There are a lot of different theologians' ideas of where those letters are. Some people believe that all four of those pieces of correspondence are contained here in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Other theologians and commentators will say that a couple of those letters have been lost to antiquity over time, that we don't know the first correspondence, that we don't know one of the others, and that likely what we're seeing in 1st and 2nd Corinthians is his second letter to them, and maybe either his third or his fourth, depending on who you listen to. Listen, they're all just making their best guesses. But what we know is that there's an ongoing dialogue between a guy who was there to plant the church and to shepherd it and to care for it, who then leaves. By the time he writes the letter in probably AD 54 or 55, he's been in Ephesus for almost two years. So he's been away from Corinth for a while. And he receives correspondence that gives him, uh, both from the church at Corinth, but then also from others, that give him an indication that things are not as they should be in that little church. In fact, when we we think about the city of Corinth, I've already kind of laid it out that it's a wealthy seaport, it's diverse, it's commercial, it's sex-obsessed, that it's got a Roman vibe on Greek soil, it's prideful and debauched and powerful. When we think about the city, you might shudder, but listen to the way, as we study 1 Corinthians, the way we will understand their church community being described variously. The church at Corinth, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is a church that is divided. It's a church that's cliquish. In some moments, it's got a relaxed attitude toward moral and doctrinal standards. There's very little submission to authority. There's no humility. There's lack of consideration for others. As we'll see described in the pages of this book, we see that there are moments where the people are intensely focused on the development of dramatic spiritual gifts, but they're very short on love for one another. And that might kind of disappoint you because you might have an ideal of the early church, right? I know I certainly sometimes have an ideal of the early church. You read in Acts 2 and it just sounds like everything's peachy, right? Everybody's sharing. They're breaking bread together. They love one another. Listen to this description in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42, speaking of the early church, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think it's possible for us sometimes to think about the early church with an idealized perception. And it just seems like everything was great and everybody was in harmony and everybody was at peace and things were just, you know, full blast all the time. And yet what we understand from reading a book like 1 Corinthians is that the early church was busted just like the modern church is busted. And just like the church in every age since the first century has been busted. And you know why? Because the church, like this one, is filled with broken people, like this one, right? They are people who who have their sights set on the right thing for a while, but are easily distracted. And we will see that return to again and again in our study of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes the letter because he loves this church, because he cares about them, and he doesn't want them to get off track from the things that are central and essential. But it's also important for us, when we're reading a letter like this, to recognize that it was written in a particular time, to a particular church, written by a particular person, in a particular context, right? And so some of those particularities can be confusing. In this very first section we'll study today, he's going to talk a little bit about Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And and you might be tempted to go, oh, we have to be really careful that here in 2022, none of us become followers of Apollos. Well, look, that's not really a threat, right? So in that case, 
What we have to do is go, there was a specific thing said to a specific people in a specific time, in a specific way. And the work for us is to listen to the Holy Spirit to understand how the principle that sits on top of that specific command or that specific rebuke applies to us in a modern setting. Does that make sense? Guided by the Holy Spirit, it it is literally like we're reading somebody else's mail. It's like reading somebody else's mail. And in the same way that sometimes you can misappropriate tone and voice and context in a text message, and it's better to actually sit with somebody across the table to understand what they're actually saying to you, we must be very, very careful when reading an epistle that was written by someone to someone in a wholly different age in order to understand which pieces of this are universal even in 2022. Does that make sense? So as we dive in, there's my preamble, right? You get a little bit of who Paul is, a little bit of who he's writing to, a little bit of the context. So let's dive right in and look here at his greeting. This letter takes a form uh, that is very similar to his other epistles. He begins with a greeting in the first three verses. He says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. If you read the, uh, the, the, uh, the section in Acts that I recommended in Acts 18, Sosthenes there is the second of two Jewish leaders of the synagogue who is converted. Now, this might be the same Sosthenes, or it might be a different Sosthenes because it was a relatively common name. But there was a guy, according to Acts 18, who was the second leader there in that time period of the synagogue who became a Christian. It could be the same guy. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. If you're the kind of person who's taking notes and you want to remember the things that are vital in the letter, I would have you circle or underline the church of God. From the outset, Paul understands and he wants them to understand that the church in Corinth is not Corinth's church. It's not their church. It's not Paul's church. It's God's church. And while that might seem insignificant to you, it is very easy for us as human beings to get off track and to forget that the church belongs to God. He says, I'm writing, I send greetings to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting is really beautiful. And that what he's doing is he's showing sort of the universal nature of the body, the church, but not just in Corinth. He's showing the way that the church in Corinth fits with the larger church. He says, I'm writing as as an apostle who's been called. I'm writing to people at the church in Corinth, the church of God, who also have been called to call upon the name of the Lord, right? In alignment with people everywhere in all places who also have been called and are calling. So in his greeting, there's a major emphasis on calling. He's both emphasizing that he himself has been called as an apostle, but he's also emphasizing that they were called by God. He's trying to show at the outset of the letter that everything that is good in them is a result of God's initiative in them, right? It's not by their own work. It's not by their own striving. It's not by their own holiness. It's not by their own knowledge or their own alliances that he's writing to a church that is, that is defined by the fact that God called them and that God called them to something specific. The way he defines the church in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is as of those who have been called by God to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's who he's calling the church. That includes us here, right? There are many in this room who've been called by God to call upon the name of the Lord. I, I love this, this phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, because in the Old Testament... 
when they were trying to indicate that people started worshiping Yahweh, they would say, at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You might remember that in our Genesis study. At that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. He's using that same phraseology here in 1 Corinthians, but he's not just talking about the Lord. He places the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in that space. So what he's being indicative of there is that calling upon the name of the Lord is the same thing as calling upon Jesus himself. He's pointing at the deity of Christ. And he's saying the thing that unites us and the people from the other churches in this city, the thing that unites us no matter what denomination or background, no matter what language we speak, no matter what color, that all people everywhere who've been called by God to call upon the name of Christ, that's the church. And he even goes one step further. Because we're tempted to want to create division or to want to lift ourselves up because we're, uh, we are tempted to sort of insert our own kind of selfish possessiveness. He goes one step further and says in verse 2, both their Lord and ours. We were called to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, who is our Lord, but he isn't just our Lord. That's what Paul's saying. If you have some sense that Jesus is somehow uniquely yours or specifically yours or that he's yours in a different way or a greater way than he is of all the other human beings on the planet in every place and every time who've been called by him to call upon him, you've misunderstood. We are the same. Their Lord and ours, the same. He says, grace and peace to you. Then he goes on into the section of thanksgiving. In his section of thanksgiving, which is also common... The interesting note to make in 1 Corinthians 1 is that unlike some of the other epistles, he doesn't actually show gratitude for anything they've done, right? He doesn't talk specifically about their work or about the things they've accomplished. I think that's because of who he's writing to. I think he's writing to a church that's puffed up. I think they're very aware of who they are and what they've done and how impressive all of that is. And so notice in his thanksgiving section that what he thanks God for is God's work and God's grace in them. He says this in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's thankful for God's grace in them rather than their work. And he begins, and this is beautiful. We're going to see in the, in the study of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see a lot of rebuke. We're going to see a lot of correction. And I want, to, I want to say something about this too. Some of you know the way we plan our sermon series around here, but some of you don't. We actually plan to teach 1 Corinthians uh, a year and a half ago. So a year and a half ago, I have a teaching team that sits and prays and talks about where we want to go. I bring that plan in front of the staff. I bring that plan in front of the elders. We have conversation all the way out. But a year and a half ago, we started talking about what we'd be teaching in 2022. And in that time is when we shaped out like the Who We Are series we've just come out of. We shaped that sort of Advent series that we're coming into, the things we're going to do next year. All of that gets shaped a year or a year and a half in advance. We're currently working on our teaching plan for 2024. So what I want to say to you is that we're going to hear in the midst of this letter a lot of things that are going to feel very timely, right? So there are going to be things as we study 1 Corinthians that are going to feel like they were ripped from the headlines. Things that you're going to go like, ow, this hits a little close to home. Some of it's going to feel very much like America. Some of it's going to feel like a rebuke to churches. And you know what? Some of it's going to feel very specifically like a rebuke to things that are happening in our local church at this very time. I want you to understand, we didn't choose to study 1 Corinthians two weeks ago. We didn't choose to study it in May. We didn't... We didn't didn't sort of let the tail wag the dog on this. God led us to 1 Corinthians 
long before we were ever in the, in the mix that we're in right now. We trust his spirit to guide us in that. But my point in all of that is to say, in the course of the, of the chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to rebuke this church for lots of different things. But he doesn't begin by pointing out the ugly truth about them. What he begins with is pointing out the beautiful truth of them. And I don't want us to miss it because as we lean into this book, it will be important for us to come back again and again to the beautiful truth of the church at Corinth because it's the very same beautiful truth of the church in Fullerton or the church in California or the church in America or the church in the world. Here's what he says. This beautiful truth about the church at Corinth is this, that by the grace of God, there is an overarching timeline of faithfulness. And that timeline, as he describes it, that he shows gratitude for, is that God called them in the past. Not only did he call them, but he confirmed in them the truth of who he was. And then in the present, right, in the present, he has equipped them and enriched them, right? He's given them, it says, everything they need. So God was with them in the past. God is with them in the present, providing for them everything they need. And then it also says that that very same God, the one who called them and equips them in the present, is the one who will sustain them and finish his work in the future. So before he ever says, hey, don't be divided, or here's the thing about this, or here's the thing about that, or knock this off, or knock that off, before he ever gets into his rebuke, he starts by saying, hey, I want you to remember the most important truth about you. And this is true for us here this morning. The most important truth about the church at Fullerton Free is that God established it, that God has called us here. That he confirms that. That he, he is the one who enriches us and provides for us. We have everything we need. And he is the one who will sustain us into the future. It's not unlike what Paul says in Philippians 1. In verse 6, writing to the church of Philippi, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This truth, this truth in 1 Corinthians 1 is that there is this timeline of faith that we can all rest in. I, I'm sure, like me, you have friends and neighbors. Maybe you yourself have at times felt yourself being fearful and worried. Maybe as you watch the news or you listen to things that are going on, you hear reports of other people and you start to think, what's happening to our world? You know, what's happening to the church? What's happening to this or that? And where's this all going to go? Paul wants to kind of get in. He wants to drive a wedge in here into your mind and say, look, God started this. God sustains it and God will finish it. Relax. There is a beautiful truth about you, even in the midst of your brokenness and the things that need to be corrected. And that is that God is doing work here and you can trust him. The beauty of the faithfulness in the church's timeline is our anchor. This comprehensive timeline of God's faithfulness gives us something we can trust and believe in. We are called in the past, not lacking in the present, and sustained until the end. That is not a truth that is specific to the church at Corinth. That is a truth of every church everywhere in all time of those who've been called by God to call upon his name. It's true of us. So he begins with a beautiful truth, and then from there, he leans into the first of several not as beautiful truths, right? And here's where he goes in verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers. And by the way, he uses that word brothers a couple of times here. I want to make sure you understand that's not gender specific. He's not talking about men or dudes. He's talking about family, right? So he's talking about men and women who have the same parentage, the same lineage. And that lineage is rooted in the fact that we've been called upon by God to call upon his name. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
Okay, that's easy, right? No big deal. Just let's all agree on everything and be united. No big thing. Like, okay, Paul, thanks for suggesting it. We'll do that, right? Any of you who are part of a family and all of you are part of a family one way or another, whether it's your biological family or not, know how difficult it is to agree on anything, right? We have a hard time agreeing on stuff, even in my own house. I remember when my kids were little, you know, we'd be in the car and my boys would go, Dad, it's so hot. Will you turn on the air conditioner, please? Like, we're burning up in here. And then I'd hear this tiny little voice from my daughter in a car seat in the back, facing the other direction. And she'd go, me cold, right? Like, even there, I can't seem to find unity, right? I want you to understand that when Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, hey, I want to encourage you as family with the same parentage to agree that the language there is of saying the same thing. What he's not saying is that we all have to have the same opinion or that we have to all have the same preferences. He's not saying that, you know, if somebody stands up and says, you know what, I really love enchiladas, that all of us have to be like, well, I guess I love enchiladas now too, right? It doesn't mean that we give up our preferences and our tastes. It doesn't mean that we don't have opinions. What it means is that we recognize them as opinions. Somebody comes in and says, well, I, I only think the music is worshipful when the grand piano is on stage. And then all the rest of us have to be like, okay, well, I guess we got a grand piano every week. That's silly. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that all of us ha- have to give up everything and all have the same tastes or the same preferences. But what he is saying is that there should be an overarching principle. There should be a greater truth under which all of our preferences are united. Does that make sense? There should be a greater truth that unites us than our individual tastes that have the tendency to divide us. He says, I'm asking you as family... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I'm reminded of Philippians 2, where Paul says in Philippians 2, speaking of having the same mind, in Philippians 2, 2, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are called to have the mind of Christ, who even though he was in the form of God, did not need to hold on to that or insist upon it, but emptied himself for the glory of God and the good of others. So in 1 Corinthians, when he looks at them and says, hey, we're supposed to be family, can can we all say the same thing? The idea is not that everybody gets rid of their tastes, but rather that we, we understand that as people who are called by God, equipped by God and sustained by God into the future, that there is a unifying principle under which we can find alignment, even whether you like enchiladas or lasagna, or whether you like, you know, grand piano or electric guitar, you're, you're allowed to have those tastes. And he'll illustrate that point more clearly as we go. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He says, I'm hearing that that you guys are divided by, by your preferences. Listen, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, Cephas, by the way, is just another name for Peter. Those are good guys who are actually preachers of the gospel. They're, they're not bad guys who are trying to lead, you know, cult factions. These are guys who are doing the work of the ministry in a good way. It isn't their fault, but the fault of those who have leaned into their focus on Paul or Apollos or Cephas 
to the division of other things. He's not saying, hey, lay down your taste. There are good reasons to, to love the teaching of any of those people. The problem is that when your love of those people becomes a dividing line. You see, we, we as human beings are selective. We as human beings, we like our preferences and we like our preferences because they give us some value, right? We're in some ways kind of defined by the things we think are great, the movies we like and the foods we like. It sort of helps us identify who we are. It helps us identify who we're not. It helps us identify who our community is. We find ourselves grouping up based on our tastes and our preferences, whether those are culinary or political or theological or whatever. We find ourselves sort of setting ourselves up because of the way we want things done or the way we like things. Again, it's not wrong to have those preferences and those tastes. We all have them. The problem is when those things become an idol. Values are a way to find worth and identity and community. And this is fine until that selectivity overshadows that which is central. Until that preference overshadows that which is essential. The key for us, here it is, if you're taking notes, don't miss this. The key for us is understanding what our preferences are. Understanding, it's not wrong to like particular Bible teachers. It's not wrong to like particular podcasts. It's not wrong to like particular theological issues and to want to study them and dig in. But the moment your opinions and the moment that your preferences become a way to either look down at somebody else or divide yourself into groups is the moment it's become wicked. And that's true in the church. It's true in our families. It's true in our communities, right? The moment that we become divided by our preferences is the problem where it's become sin, where it's become evil, where it's become the work of Satan, right? To divide us. So he says, I hear that some of you are saying I follow Paul and some are saying I follow Apollos and some are following Cephas. Well, there are good reasons why people might follow this. Paul Paul was the founder, right? He was the guy who came and planted the church. He's like the original, he's like the OG guy in Corinth, right? You can understand why people might be like, hey, it doesn't matter who else comes and goes, right? There's going to be other leaders and other pastors and whatever, but like, we're Paul's guys because we were here when the thing started. We've been members of this church for a long time, right? And it's not wrong to love Paul. Paul did great work among them. But Paul himself is saying, hey, don't focus on me. My work there was to focus you on Christ, There are others who might look at Apollos and they go, well, you know, Paul is kind of uneducated and he's not that great of an order, not that great of a speaker, but Apollos, I mean, that guy's got a great education. Very articulate. He's a great apologist. He's very clear in the way he forms his arguments and his teaching. Like, Paul's fine, but like, we're we're Apollos people in this house, man. We love Apollos. And it's fine, again, to prefer that style. It's fine to have that be your taste as long as you know it's your taste. The moment that it becomes divisive is the moment that it becomes wicked correctable. Peter, on the other hand, I mean, Peter is a guy who actually sat in the boat with Jesus in ways that Paul certainly can't claim. Paul will claim an interaction and absolutely had an interaction with the Lord Jesus on the road, but it's a little different than a guy who walked and talked with Jesus for years. So there may be people in this community, they're going, hey, we're, we like Paul. He's great. I mean, we're glad he planted this church and Apollos does have some good things to say, but like, you know, Peter is really the, like, he's a guy who actually like, spent time with Jesus. So we're followers of Cephas. Theologians and commentators are not totally sure what that fourth group is, where it says, some say, I follow Christ. We would look at that and go, well, it seems like the people who are saying, I follow Christ would be in a good category. That's not the way it's written here. It's written negatively. So that may mean a couple of different things. That might be a group of people who are saying, well, we actually heard Jesus teach, or we were actually baptized by the disciples of Jesus, or we actually, you know, were in his presence and witnessed some of his things. So it might be people who are claiming we follow Christ because of their proximity. It might also just be people in that age, like many in this age, who claim a unique uh, sort of relationship with Jesus that nobody else has and nobody else understands, right? 
You might have met people like that over time where they're like, well, you just don't get my relationship with Jesus. Right? It's something unique and different than anybody else has. Whatever the case, Paul is referring to it in a negative way. And he says, some of you say, I follow Paul. And some of you say, I follow Apollos. And some of you say, I follow Cephas. And some of you say, I follow Christ. But what's going on here? And we, wanna, we, need, we need to think about this. We need to think about in our own lives the places where our preferences become sources of division, where our tastes or our opinions become sources of division. The commentator Stephen Um says that when we, when we are dealing with horizontal fracture, and by that I mean division and brokenness among human beings, that in every case, horizontal fracture is the result of vertical distraction or vertical drift. When we get our eyes off of Jesus, the relationship with one another breaks down. And, and Paul illustrates that, I think, beautifully in verse 13. So in verse 13, he's going to give us three rhetorical questions that aren't really rhetorical at all. and We need to think about them in turn. The first thing he says after he says, I've heard that there's this division because you're saying these things. He gives us three questions. Verse 13, the first one is this. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? And the answer obviously is a resounding no. Christ is not divided. What's he saying? Well, there's a couple things he's saying with that statement, with that question. The first thing he's saying is that when we represent Christ in a way that is dismembered, and I know that's kind of a gross word, but when we reveal Christ in a dismembered way, when when the various parts of the body, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to come back to the idea of the body of Christ being diverse but united. When we reveal Christ as an arm over here and a leg over there and a head over here and a torso over there, and never those pieces shall meet, we don't reveal the actual Christ. That's a marring of the image of Christ. Because the answer to this first question is, Christ is not divided. He is united. The other side of that very same coin is, there isn't anybody on the planet who has more of Christ than anybody else who's been called to call upon his name, right? Listen to me, church. Everybody in this room who calls upon the name of the Lord because you've been called by God to do so, you have all of Christ. There isn't anybody in a seminary anywhere that has more of Jesus than you have, that has more of the Holy Spirit than you have. There isn't someone older or wiser. There is not someone who's unlocked a secret room or a secret door. There is not someone who's understood some secret knowledge that you don't have. Christ is not divided and he's not apportioned in division. We all have all of him, which means there's no reason for us to fight. There's no reason for the struggle in the battle because Christ is not divided. If you're a follower of Jesus, all of Jesus is yours. Sometimes we mistakenly pray or sing, we want more of you. We want more of you, God. We want more of you, Jesus. We want more of you, Holy Spirit. And I know what the sentiment is, but you cannot theologically get more of the Holy Spirit. You have him. You have all of him. He is not divided. Now you can give more of yourself to him. And maybe that's a better way to pray that and sing it. God, would you take more of me? Holy Spirit, would you guide more of me? That's, a, that's an effective prayer. But there aren't, there aren't people in other churches or, or sections of this church that have more of Jesus. He's not divided. That's the answer to the first question. Centering ourselves vertically where we become distracted. He first says, is Christ divided? The answer is no. The second question he asks is, was Paul crucified for you? And once again, resoundingly, the answer is no. I mean, literally, Paul wasn't crucified for us. But more importantly, what Paul is saying is, not only did I not die on the cross for your sins, but I need the death of Jesus as much as you do. So when you elevate Paul, or you elevate Apollos, or you elevate Cephas, you're elevating people who are just as broken. At the foot of the cross, we are all the same. 
at the foot of the cross, we're all the same. It's only when we take our eyes off of Christ and off of the cross that some of us begin to think we're a little better off than other people. We're a little better Christians. We're a little holier. We're a little more knowledgeable. We're a little more faithful. We're a little more moral, whatever. We start to divide when we forget that all of us at the base of the cross are just broken people desperately in need of a redeemer. So he looks at them and he says, you say you're following me, but, but I didn't die for you. In fact, I needed someone to die for me. Wouldn't it be better to follow the one who died for the sins of the world than one who needs his redemptive work as much as everybody else? So first he talks to us about the wholeness of Christ. And secondly, he talks to us about our mutual need for the cross. And thirdly, he says, thirdly, he says, were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you, any of you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes on. You can tell it's a letter because he, doesn't, he clearly doesn't have a backspace, right? He goes, I, I'm glad I only baptized these two people. And he's like, well, actually, I don't remember how many people I baptized. That only happens when you're handwriting something where you're like, oh, I don't want to cross it out. I'll just leave it, right? But he goes, were any of you baptized in my name? And again, the resounding answer is no. There are different people, various people who do the dunking, but the dunking even today is only in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the, the thing he's trying to point us to there is that baptism is a sign of alliance and allegiance. It's a solidarity with the death and resurrection of Christ. It's about coming under the authority of someone else. And so Paul there looks at the church at Corinth, and by extension he looks at us and he says, Have you come under the allegiance of Paul? Have you come under the authority of Darren? Have you come under the authority of like some other human teacher, Tim Keller or John Piper or whoever? No, 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 no. Those people didn't die on the cross for you. Those people are not the name in whom you were baptized. You've sworn allegiance to the king of the universe. There is someone that's worthy of your allegiance, and it's none of these human ambassadors. Someone is worthy of your allegiance, and it's none of these politicians, and it's none of these celebrity pastors, and it's none of these other people who would want you to believe that they are worthy of your allegiance and your alliance. Jesus is central. When we face horizontal fracture, it's because of vertical drift. How do we recenter ourselves vertically on Christ? By remembering first that he is not divided, that we already have all of him because of his death and resurrection. By remember that nobody else died for your sins or could have because they stand in solidarity with you in brokenness at the foot of the cross needing redemption. And you weren't baptized in anybody else's name. You were baptized in the name of Jesus because he is the only Lord worthy of your allegiance. Because he's the only perfect one. Right? It's probably worth noting as a side note that it is Paul's assumption that all of those who have been called to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have also been baptized. He doesn't say, oh, those of you who have been baptized, were you baptized? So there is an assumption of baptism, not as an obligation, but as just something that Christians do. And if you're in the room and you've never been baptized, I just want you to tuck away in the back of your head that the apostles' assumption was that everyone who's a follower of Christ will be baptized in the name of Christ, right? So just think that through. He then finishes this way. He comes to the end and he says this in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he's looking at this church and he begins by affirming the beautiful truth of the fact that they were called and confirmed by God, that they are provided for and enriched by God in the present, that they will be sustained until the end. And then he says, but I'm hearing word that there's all of this grumbling and this fighting. And it's because you've got these preferences and you're using them as sources of division. You've got this horizontal fracture because of your tastes and because of your opinions and because of your preferences. And they're, they're not even bad preferences. You just have to know their preferences. 
So come back and be centered on the wholeness of Christ. On the solidarity of man and his need for the cross. And of the only Lord that is worthy of your allegiance, in whose name you were baptized. And he goes, and you know, to be honest with you, he says in 17, he goes, I'm glad I haven't baptized a lot of people because that's not what God sent me to do. God didn't send me to baptize. Now listen, hear, hear what he's saying. He's not saying baptism isn't important. He's not saying he doesn't care about baptism. He's already just affirmed that. What's he saying? Baptism's important. It's not the most important thing. And the moment that we make our opinions about baptism or who baptized us or who didn't baptize us or where that was or when it was or what words they said or what body of water it was in or whatever kind of thing we can divide ourselves on over baptism, which humans are great at, the moment that we get divided by baptism, we've missed the real point. He goes, he didn't call me to baptize. He called me to preach the gospel. And the gospel, as Paul understood it, he articulates for us at the end of this book in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let, let me let you hear the gospel as Paul understood it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. He goes on to say that he appeared to other people. And then he goes on to argue about the importance of the resurrection. But listen, Christ says, Paul says, let me tell you what's most important. I didn't, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. And the gospel is this. Jesus came, died for our sins, and rose again and appeared. Full stop. There's the gospel. That's what I came to declare. That is of first importance. And if we're divided by Cephas or Apollos or Paul or Republican or Democrat or tacos or enchiladas or lasagna or grand pianos or rock guitars or whatever. If we're divided by anything else, that horizontal fracture because it comes because we've taken our eyes off the wholeness of Christ that we have. His calling, his sustaining ability, his future fulfillment. When we start to drift from our centrality in Christ. We forget that he's the only Lord worthy of our allegiance. We forget that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. Then, yeah, we're going to start to divide on our tastes and our preferences. And we're going to have little churches here and little churches there and little groups there. And we're going to have little pockets and people who want to just be a part of their little thing and no more. Paul says that's wrong. And that isn't the thing that's, that's captured uniquely in the first century that doesn't make sense to us. Because I think right here in 2022, we all take that one right on the chin. So church lets us recenter on the wholeness of Jesus, on his cross that's for all of us, and on the fact that he is the only one worthy of our allegiance and see where that takes us. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this book. I know there's a lot in this book that will be challenging and uh, interesting to, to sort of grapple with together. But I thank you for the way that Paul cared for the church at Corinth and the way that your Holy Spirit inspired him to write to them in a way that speaks to us. I pray that there wouldn't be a single one of us in the room this morning that would be thinking, oh, my friend needs to read this or my coworker needs to hear this. Or the person who used to go to this church needs to listen to this online or whatever. Like, God, will you, will you set us free from, from the distraction of other people? And instead, will you allow us to think about the ways in which our tastes and preferences have divided us from those who also call upon the name of the Lord, their Lord and ours? And will you prompt in us a spirit of joy and unity in the truth of who you are, that our horizontal fracture will be eliminated as we are vertically aligned with the truth of who you are. We pray that in Christ's name.
Amen.